You are listening to the Wool Academy podcast. This is episode number 99. Hello and welcome. My name is Elizabeth van Delden and once a week we talk to an industry expert from the wool industry supply chain from farm to fashion and beyond, delivering strategies and insights to be successful in wool and showcasing those beautiful stories wool has to tell. I have the pleasure of welcoming Rebecca Burgess on the show today. Rebecca is the founder of The Fiber Shed based in California. In today's interview, Rebecca and I will be talking about what The Fiber Shed exactly is. But first, let me welcome Rebecca to the show. Rebecca, it's so lovely to be talking to you today. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> Yes, and I think we have so much to talk about. So may I just ask you to introduce yourself and tell us exactly what you do? Um, so what I do, I'm currently the executive director of Fibershed, which is, in our terminology, it's used to describe our organization. But Fibershed has a function as a kind of a noun. It could be describing an actual Uh, strategic geography, which defines a textile resource base. Um, but in terms of my day-to-day -day work, it's to run an organization called Cybershed. And that entails managing projects that and, um, and developing fundraising strategies for rebuilding our fiber system in our community. So it's analogous to how people have tried to re-envision a healthy food shed or a watershed. What are the regional economic development opportunities in our community to start bringing local fiber and dye uh, forward? We have an abundance of raw material, but we don't utilize that raw material into, we don't metabolize it into finished products. We have a very... Um, in fifth grade, when I was learning about colonialism, um, the kind of economy that we have here in California for our agricultural production is very um, reminiscent of what you would have learned about in what they'd say in the old days about colonial economics, where one country would provide a raw material and then another country would add value to that and then sell it for a much higher price. And the farmers and ranchers tend not to see all the, the gains made from whatever their product becomes from their raw material. And we see that there's a real need in our community for farmers and ranchers, especially those producing wool, to see added value to their material. So we like to create direct markets between the wool producer and the end user. Um, they're They're very, there's a lot of, I would say, opportunity for growth in, in direct markets for wool supply in our area. And we're also interested in rebuilding manufacturing systems so that people can actually produce something of value with the wool that they, they raise. So a lot of my work is looking at business plans and um, assessing the capacity of our region to, to process wool. What does that look like? What's the talent acquisition What are the pro formas and sensitivity analysis and things we have to really create to see what's possible? So we do a lot of that pre-pre-business planning work, which nonprofits can do, and we are a nonprofit. Okay, that sounds amazing and also very complex and lo lots of aspects to it. 
But before we maybe dive more deeper into the Fibershed, can you maybe take us to the beginning? How did you come up with the idea for Fibershed? Well, it, it's something that I think has been at play for you know long millennia for human beings that they depended upon um, their home, you could say, region. You know, prior to maybe fossil fuels, there was a, just a reality that human power or animal power would have kept you more reliant on a smaller strategic geography to get your resource needs fulfilled. And so the concept, um, you could say it reflects back, but it also, to me, it looks forward in that um, we are also hitting a time when um, fossil carbon usage for fueling industrial systems and transportation and distribution networks, it's, it's quite seriously impacting um, our ability as humans to continue to live on planet Earth. And um, we need to make transitions, and not all of those transitions can be just electrifying our grid um, and continuing to ship things like basically textiles are non-perishable. So it's been you know, pretty easy for people to just pile up raw materials in shipping containers and move them all over the world. Um, so a fiber shed is looking at that system or, you know, the concept of a fiber shed is really quite the opposite of that. It's like how much can you do in your home community that is less resource um, consuming to make um, materials that you need. And like I said, I, I don't see that even if we electrify our entire grid and go back to maybe some other more appropriate technologies, the current system, I don't see it economically thriving or surviving um, without major adjustments. And I'm not saying fiber sheds are the only adjustment. There's a suite of adjustments that our economy needs to um, in, engage and synthesize. But definitely regionalization um, is an important facet of transforming our systems so that we can, we can continue to thrive um, on this planet. <laughs> So it comes from the past, but I think, again, it has a vision for the future. And if I understand correctly, you kind of started just with yourself by starting to just wear clothes that you could make or source from a certain radius around yourself. Is that oh, how? yes. That is, that's how I, I learned that it was possible that, you know, we really did have enough raw material. I, I did start with collaborating with farmers and artisans in my home community to build out a prototype wardrobe. And it, it was something I, I wore for a year, actually more like 18 months. And it was beautiful, and I still wear those clothes. Um, and in the process of creating these sweaters and leggings and hats and scarves and growing all the dyes, I mean, we all the labor, all the dye, and all the fiber had to be grown within 150 miles of my front door. And in the process, like here it is nine years later, and I'm still to this day discovering new farms and ranches and new things I didn't know about. And I've been studying this 22-county region for some time, and it amazes me how much, um, how much is here um, that we just haven't been looking at 
strategically. So that, yeah, the wardrobe challenge was an eye opener. And I think it's also important in these conversations. Um, when I first started to think about dressing myself differently, there is a human, natural human response because of the um, severity maybe of the challenges that we are all looking at in terms of <laughs> environmental challenges. I did remember, and I still do to this day, receive a lot of um, commentary that states, like, people will say, well, it's great you could do that, but, you know, it's not realistic for clothing seven and a half billion people. And, you know, w one can hear that and say, yeah, that, that, that commentary, that critique is, is very real. We need to think about that. And I think that that comment is important in some way, but it also is immediately used as a method for obfuscating responsibility personally. And I've watched it over and over and over again. People will say, well, that's nice you did that, but we need a bigger solution. While they are standing there wearing plastic polyester fleece and, you know, brand new fast fashion clothing items, you know, they'll... <laughs> They will say, well, one-year wardrobe challenge. Well, it's just not big enough. And I think I, I'm starting to unearth the psychology in that more and more as I mature in this work, that we need, a, really, we need personal action to be very well paired with state-level policy change. It's not one or the other. It's not like, I'm just going to keep wearing fast fashion until the government regulates it out of existence. Or I'm just going to keep doing whatever, you know, driving my car everywhere that's, you know, combustion engine um, until the government regulates it out of existence. It's really important that we do something before the government has time to act. And so I'm really inspired by what I learned in the One Year Wardrobe Challenge. It gave me a lot of freedom and agency to show that, yes, it's possible and other people can do this. And so the work has really jettisoned into how we can make this work real for our community and thus inspire other communities to scale their fiber shed systems. My attitude towards scaling is to replicate versus creating monoliths in like South, Southeastern Asia that, you know, produce most of our clothing. Um, I'm interested, yeah, in that idea of everyone getting stronger and everyone getting more emboldened to take m management of their own material resource base. And so fiber sheds are really about that. <laughs> yeah. And if when, so when you started with your clothing challenge, then you say now it's been nine years already. How did the fiber shed develop over time? Um, like did more people join you in your your clothing challenge, for example, or how did more, you know, people in the community get involved? They were involved from, some were involved in the very beginning through making the clothes and then their relationships with their friends and family got the word out to, about the work. Um, and so initially it was this very uh, word of mouth set of relationship building processes and then today um, we have um, a website and we have people wanting to come and be members we have 160 farms um, and ranches 
and artisans in our formal producer program. And that just means that they pay $40 a year and we come out and we document what they're doing. We take micron samples of their wool. Um, we're now working on developing carbon farm plans for each of the livestock and also natural dye and other fiber producers, land-based peoples. Uh, we're talking about how we can really regenerate the soils. That's what carbon farming is. It's about rebuilding soil health in our systems. We've lost 50% of the carbon in our soils. And um, we really take uh, this seriously that if we're going to rebuild a watershed, food shed, fiber shed, whatever shed, you have to rebuild it and you, in a way that's creating health for itself. You can't deplete that system you're dependent on. You have to regenerate those systems. So it's interesting that by today, you know, we're getting people that, like I said, like we don't know them, um, and they're becoming part of the system that we're creating, which is we, we do meetups, um, we do symposiums, we have pop-up marketplaces, um, we do community panel discussions. We've done this year um, a refashioning event where people bring their clothing and they get to repair and mend their clothes together as a community. Um, so we do a lot of things to galvanize people to come together, even if now, like I said, nine years later, we're, we're working with people who we didn't we don't really know they are coming to us and we're getting to know them for the first time and the community's building um, in ways I would have never ex anticipated actually. It's getting bit, much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that must then um, yeah, create like a, another dynamic. No? The more people join, the more dynamic uh, things happen, you know, more people collaborate. So it must be really exciting. And how, like, when you first approached some of the ranchers to be part of the fiber shed community, did it was it difficult to convince them, or how how did you get them involved to to look at things like carbon and and you know grow, for example, wool for local consumption? Well, we started by working with them in a way that was easy for them, meaning we were buying their wool <laughs> or their material, and we were offering to pair their wool or raw material, if it was alpaca or um, angora or cashmere, mohair, we would partner, well, we would pair their wool with, it was kind of like pairing a row crop farmer with a chef um, and how, you know, you could, but we were pairing designers with farmers. And we would work with designers who were young. We would go to the design schools because we knew this was a novel idea and it wasn't, you know, like I was going to go out there and get, you know, people at New York Fashion Week to come out. And <laughs> and that wasn't the point. We weren't trying to get large brands involved, but we were able to get um, our community of knitters and felters and, and design community out. And then the farmers were like, oh, this is wonderful because you're buying my wool or my material and, and I'm getting to see it metabolized into a beautiful garment. And we would take natural light photographs, um, professionally hired photographer to come out. And they really liked seeing their work documented. They liked having, and we would give them those photographs to use on their own 
website so they could support their own direct markets. Um, and then this garment, like I said, that was part of something that I would generally wear. But, you know, things now have come to the point where they also are, um, for carbon farming, they've become more open to it. But it wasn't that we started there. <laughs> I didn't, like, start by, here, let's develop a carbon farm plan. You know, it was more like a lot of trust and relationship building had to happen. I, I would say over the first three to four years before we were able to engage the carbon farming piece. Mm. And yeah, go a little bit more in detail into the carbon fi uh, farming so that our listeners can, can better understand what, what is all behind that. Well, carbon farming is the act of increasing these photosynthetic, some people call it light farming, the idea that you're increasing the amount of surface area where light or photon energy is being captured on a farm or ranch or landscape. And that means you, and you're actively trying to keep uh, photosynthesis occurring. And what this means is that the plant life that hopefully you are in, you know, in creating, um, on your landscape, whether that's through, I can go through the practices in a moment that actually allow for that light farming or photon capture, uh, energy capture to happen. But what fundamentally we're doing is we're trying to um, capture carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere the way plants do. <laughs> There's nothing new about this work. This is how Earth kind of established itself is this amazing thing we call photosynthesis where plants take in um, CO2 driven by the energy of the sun and this photon energy drives the carbon cycle. So the plant will take in carbon dioxide through the stoma or the little holes underneath the leaf of the plant and break the molecule and release the oxygen for us to breathe and then take the carbon and move it down. In the case of many plants, they're moving that carbon down into their root system in the form of glucose. So about 30% of the carbon that a plant takes in, which is really atmospheric carbon they use, they transform that into below-ground glucose. And that glucose feeds fungal networks and microbes. So that's fundamentally the, 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 the way this system works, about how you move carbon from the atmosphere through a plant and into the soil. Um, Now, how we take that to the landscape level is really the act of, like, what does carbon farming look like? We really want to enhance how much carbon we're capturing so we can start to move out of this very scary, risky number of 410 parts per million of carbon in our atmosphere. We drastically need to reduce that. Some people say 350 parts per million of carbon in our atmosphere is okay. Others say we need 280 parts per million to really survive um, as humans on the earth. And carbon farming actually gives us a window of opportunity to, to remove carbon from our atmosphere naturally while creating healthy soil and very productive landscapes. And so we, we do these things called carbon farm plans with our partners at the Carbon Cycle Institute. And we also have a group of agencies called the Resource Conservation Districts. And These plans go, you go out to a farm or ranch and you just walk around with the farmer and, you, you know, you ask, like, what is it you want to have happen here? Most of them want 
longer growing seasons so that they have more grass to feed their animals. In our case, because we're a very drought-stricken area, um, some of them, some of these landscapes have been heavily deforested. So some of these farmers would like a windbreak or an area where they can block the airflow um, to mitigate against erosion. Um, some people need new water systems built so that they can move the water for the animals across a broad landscape so you can do prescriptive and adaptive rotational grazing of your animals. So they, they the farmers throw out their bucket list of like my favorite things I'd love to do to my farm <laughs> and or we call it the kitchen sink. I think that's a better term for it. The kitchen sink of ideas. And then um, a rangeland ecologist or someone from the resource conservation district that we work with will start to tally which of these practices are actually helping draw down atmospheric carbon. And it's interesting. A lot of what the farmers want for their land, these are also things that make for a healthy carbon farm practice. Uh, water uh, management and distribution for adaptive managed grazing is one of them. So anyway, we designed this all up in a plan. These plans are many pages long. They have GIS mapping associated with them and computer modeling systems that we use to say, hey, okay, we're going to plant a hedgerow here. We're going to put compost out here. We're going to get rid of your nitrogen fertilizers. <laughs> Do this water system. Um, it's going to basically add up to you sequestering 800 metric tons of carbon per year on your, you know, 30 acres. Um, and so we can model it. And that modeling tool is something that was built by a university in our country called, um, it's called the Comet tool. But I think many countries have these computer modeling tools that can model biological carbon sequestration. Um, so then they get their plan and then we help try to fund that. And so some of the funding is, you know, can we get more money for the wool to start paying for the price of implementing. So we have been starting to do that with brands who are paying more for the wool and also donating money to actually restore the landscapes where they're getting their wool from. Um, so the North Face has been involved in that, um, a betting company we work with, Cayuchi, um, and much smaller brands are also, like small design houses are also working on this. Um, so yeah, that's, carbon firm planning process um, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much for explaining that in a very easy to understand um, way. That was really cool. And tell me a little bit more about some of the other members of your community um, and what kind of things and projects they're working on. Um, in our community, in terms of different members of the community, we have um, like we have some people working on making natural pigment extractions, um, meaning growing dye plants and making extracts out of them and using those for natural paint and, and of course, natural dye. Um, that's uh, Judy Petit. Um, she has a company called BioHues. And um, that's a really interesting project that I'd like to see grow. I'd like to see more earth-based pigments used for dye. And, and I like to grow indigo myself. I, I'm really interested in growing the color blue and have been doing so for some time. And I'd really excited to see other farmers in our area starting to do this. Um, we need to scale that project for sure. <laughs> um, 
Um, other things people are doing, um, we have uh, a, a group of six ranchers working on their carbon farm plan, but as a peer group, they're all helping and working with each other. Um, like we will bring an expert grazer, grazing management, you know, someone who's really good at regenerating grasslands and we'll bring that person to one of the farms and then all the other farmers are, will come and listen and they walk each other's land together and learn from each other and learn from the expert as a group. And it's been really a joyous experience. It's so simple, you know, it's just like bringing someone who knows a lot about one thing to a group of people who don't know as much about that thing and then have them all walk together while they're talking. It's, it's, um, it reminds me a little bit of maybe like Plato's Academy, you know, like a very Socratic or way of um, walking and learning the landscape and talking about it and having a discourse. And so um, that's something that some of the producers are doing. I find really inspiring. Um, we have producers. The last thing I'll mention is we're starting to grow flax um, as well. And that is something we're doing in the winter time. And there's a group called Chico Flax. And it's a group of a collective and, you know, they're all volunteers right now, but they're farming flax in the winter and they want to build um, a small uh, linen spinning uh, facility in their area, which is just north of us. So we would have linen and wool and natural dyes and carbon farm plants, <laughs> hopefully all coming together very soon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And tell us a little bit more about the wool. Like how many different types of sheep did you find and what is the wool best used for? We have, um, starting with like the more ubiquitous uh, fine fiber sheep, we have Ramboulet. Um, I guess some people call that a French merino. I don't know if that's true, but um, we have a lot of Rambouillets in our drier and higher climate uh, in the northern and eastern part of our state. Um, we also have merino that can also be raised in the central part of the state where it's much drier. Um, and then going up, we have a lot of Corydale sheep um, and Shetlands. Um, we have some Icelandic some Gotland, um, Gotland wool, I guess you'd say the Gotland sheep. Um, so we have some heirloom breeds from other parts of the world. We have a Jacob sheep uh, that's raised by many people. Um, and we have some Romdales and Romney. Um, we have a Wessant, which is a French uh, sheep that And again, these are, these are when I describe these um, conservation breeds, they tend to be in smaller flocks, but we'll have very large flocks of Corydale, and we have very large flocks of Rambouillet. Mm -hmm. um, and we have um, something called a California variegated mutant or mutant variegated. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a kind of a red-faced sheep, um, And it, it does very well, of course, in California and in some of our drier Central Valley areas. Good for wool production and lamb. Um, and there's some Dorsets as well. Um, they're raised in the cooler area of Mendocino. And, yeah, a lot of the coarser uh, breeds are coming out of our coastal area. Suffolk, a lot of the, the lamb-producing flocks. 
they produce a coarser wool. And I would say, you know, we just, we found ourselves kind of swimming in diversity. Um, so much diversity that I even wasn't sure how we would get it all milled because there's so many different staple lengths and colors and um, yeah, a lot of diversity in this community. Yeah, that really sounds, and you really know your sheep breeds well. <laughs> I'm impressed. But how? Yeah, that is often an issue in a lot of a lot of countries that there isn't really a a system in place to collect the wool and then get it sorted, etc. So how did you organize this? Oh, well, it's actually something we still need to, to tackle. Um, we are currently, and I don't, I don't think this is true for all of the wool, but the smaller flocks is where we need to focus attention. We have a commodity wool buyer who pools the wool um, right now, and that wool gets... Um, bailed with a hydraulic press and goes to a brokerage house in the southern, well, I think it goes to New Mexico, actually, and then it goes out of um, a terminal to, to go overseas from in, in a place called Long Beach, which is very far south of us. So a lot of California wool is aggregated right now, and I think that the, the commodity market does a beautiful job, actually, of aggregating it but the direction like that it goes that it leaves our state is is what we want to change so we are going to have to do we're going to have to get our own baler um do our own grading and grade our wool for certain outcomes so we need to think about end products um in advance of how we grade and bale the wool so there's a lot of changes that need to take place especially for the small flocks um, and we've started an agricultural co-op um, to, to start considering how we would pay for this. How would we buy a baler? Um, who would run it? Where would we store the bales? And how would we, you know, think about <laughs> what manufacturing systems we need to process it? All of that is in motion. Um, but like I said, a lot of the, the producers we've worked with have relied on the commodity market to come in and bale their wool for them. And the commodity brokers, a lot of them, they're ranchers themselves. They really want to just see the wool market stay in place. You know, they just want people to continue to raise sheep. So when I say commodity market, you know, there's really good people um, in our community trying to just keep anything going, even if it has to go to China, like they're willing to just keep it going. But again, we, we want to collaborate with them and and see some state change around where this wool ends up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you, so you also mentioned in the beginning that you're working on, on rebuilding a weaving mill. Tell us a little bit more yes. about that. Um, we do have a new weaving mill in our area. And it, it was interesting that as we were fundraising for this mill, the other only mill that could weave um, cotton at scale to make denim uh, was called Cone Mill. It was a very famous um, uh, mill in, the, in North Carolina, and it, um, and it closed. And it was just interesting that we were trying to rebuild something while other mills were shutting down. But it was kind of also inspiring to, to me to see that we were able to raise the capital um, for this, it's eight looms, 
it's nowhere near the size of the mill that shut down. It, it's going to produce around 71,000 yards of fabric per year. And it will be able to, it can't, they can weave wool. We've woven a hundred percent wool uh, yardage. It's beautiful. We can also weave um, denim and chambray and other kind of traditional heirloom fabrics, fabrics that are very sturdy that will hold up for the long haul. Um, and it, we call it workwear. Um, and it comes out of an American tradition of producing clothes that people could work hard in. And it dates back to the turn of the last century, these these um, textiles that came out of our our southeastern mills. And so this weaving mill we've started um, is really focused on American workwear and kind of getting back to work <laughs> in many ways. Um, so, yeah, we're excited that it's up and running. It's run by a family, um, Ryan and Kat Houston, and they are the, the sole owners of it. Um, it. We don't have any intention of seeing this, this is an in perpetuity business. Um, it's not going to be sold off and liquidated. There's no private equity firms involved. Um, it was social impact money that started it. And we really are building it not so it can be turned into something else, but so it can really be what it is and stay what it is and what it wants to be. Mm, yeah. And where do you source then or get then the yarn and like, also, the scouring of the wool, is that already being done within the community as well? No, we're building out a business plan. We've built out one. We're refining it again uh, around scouring. And right now, wool is scoured in Texas. And um, it also moves across the country to South Carolina. And so it's it's really a sticking point. I mean, we've, we've gotten the weaving mill because it's like the tail end of the value chain. But the reason why we started with it is because we had there was someone who was very talented who could operate the mill. And we were going to, to lose them. They were going to go do something else with their life if we couldn't support them. But, you know, if you were ideally designing a system, you would start with scouring and then go to the carding pin drafting, spinning, and then you would do the knitting and the weaving. But um, we are now retroactively going back and saying, okay, so how much is this scouring going to cost and what are the other systems we need to put in play? And the, the thing is that those scouring lines and their subsequent um, carding and pin drafting, it's very, it's much more money. I'll just say, here's an example. An investment of half a million dollars is something that has helped us get our weaving mill going. Um, a different, uh, close to half a million was able to get a very small spinning mill going uh, that doesn't spin the, quite the quality we need for the weaver. But um, when we talk about scouring and pin drafting and carding at scale, like being able to manage all of the wool in our whole region, the, the price jumps to between 15 and $21 million investment. And it's just a lot of money for the fiber system that really doesn't yet, according to some investors, have the cachet that the food system has 
organic food is very interesting and people are talking about it. <laughs> um, like slow fashion and um, regional fiber systems are still a bit fresh. Um, so to get that caliber and size investment from a social impact source is just, it's going to take a little more time. So at the moment, yeah, everything has to be spun. We can spin the weft threads at a local mill, uh, really local, like 45 minutes from the weaving mill. But it's the warp threads that we get spun um, both in the state of Maine. Um, some are spun in North Carolina as well. Okay, so yeah. You, it, it's good you still have goals and things to do, so gets you out of bed every morning <laughs> yeah and, for sure yeah. and yeah you you mentioned now a little bit about the way you fund things maybe can you because it sounds that you kind of always when there's a project then you you create momentum to get that funded or talk a little bit more about how you are um, yeah, being sustainable on an economical level with the fiber shed? Mm. Well, the nonprofit has a, a very well conservative budget um, to run to keep the vision moving forward and to uh, attract some of the private contractors we need to help develop these these plans, like for the wool scour. Um, we're going to be working. Again. We've worked with a, uh, an M a master of business graduate um, in 2014 to analyze the situation, and now we're after our long and prolonged drought. We need to revisit the supply side of the business plan. So we are funding through philanthropy, which means family foundations, um, the analysis, like what after the drought. What has been the effect on the supply? How does this change the business plan? That revision will, will be paid for by um, foundation grants. And then this, you know, getting money through foundations to, to run a small, very nimble nonprofit has been, I think, a challenge in the beginning. It's becoming much less of a challenge, which is very exciting. How we fundraise, once we decide that there is a business that could make sense for the area, for the region, and decide how we're going to fund the actual business, that's a for-profit venture. And so there's a lot of um, blend, we call it blended capital that we're, we're playing with here. We're often saying, well, maybe a grant would help this business, um, you know, do this one small thing, uh, you know, a labor grant will help them with this. Or... Um, then, then these same people who are funding with grants, they often also have, this is a growing sector of capital, a for-profit side. And sometimes they call that public-related investment, a PRI, or they have, um, they have a social impact investment arm. Often these, um, these communities that have accrued you know, significant wealth through some means, um, they have multiple ways of disseminating that money back out into the community. And that can, like I said, that can happen through their foundation 
to fund our nonprofit, and then sometimes they invest. And the investments are starting to happen. I think they've been a little more scary because, um, well, there's lots of reasons. I mean, one is that a lot of the people who have made their money, who have made a lot of money in the capitalist system as it exists, they've made their money often through um, investing. (laughs) And the kinds of investments that they're used to making to make themselves a lot of money are not the kinds of investments that we need to make a sustainable and in perpetuity successful sustaining fiber shed. (laughs) Our investments look different. And they taste different, and they're going to function differently. They're not going to have high returns. The goal is not to sell the business. The goal is not to make it a monolith. The goal is actually to stay small. Um, and that's a little counterintuitive for people. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, they've made their money through doing investing in things that are going big. So... Yeah, I think we're getting there. It's a shift in consciousness that just takes time. And and you have to ask people, what kind of community do you want to live in? I mean, here in the United States, you drive around and it's big box stores, five-lane freeways. Um, maybe people like that, but I don't know many people who do really like that. I mean, it's very soulless. <laughs> we have a lot of... Like everything's big and yeah. everything's the same. Yeah. And it's often very it's ugly very, as well. <laughs> it is. It's ugly. It's big. It's boring. There's nothing I, I, I really like about any of it. And, and yet I'm surrounded by it because, you know, this is what's made America into this, you know, big um, capitalist machine is through getting every, making everything bigger. Um, but I can't say that's been good for the human being. Or the environment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and what I like about the the fiber shed is that um, how I understand it is that you focused on on that also whatever businesses you're building commu- in a community, it has to also make make economic sense for for the families or the people who are running it. But at the same time you know, do all the good on lowering the product footprint and reversing reversing climate change. So it, it's really this balance of everything together that then makes the healthy community. That's right. It is. It is everything together. It yeah. has to all come as an integrated package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also what I notice now is that there has to be a lot of new thinking on the way you just mentioned new thinking of how we invest new thinking of how we clothe ourselves new thinking how we produce things so it's in every sense um challenging us but for the better <laughs> mm. yeah it's it's um it's interesting to continue to move the challenge forward for people to keep saying yes keep um Keep thinking differently. Keep opening the the door a little wider to imagine this potential reality. Um, I'd say a lot of the work is holding to um, 
a vision that right now is held only partially on the ground and very much in in the mind and heart. And I think that's the complexity of um, movement building is because you you you're you're working to garner people's core energy towards a certain direction. Um, but you have to point them as to like why we're going this direction. And I feel it's so important to at least get one working model on the ground of what a functioning fiber shed is. Mm. I think it'll be much easier to invest in subsequent fiber shed systems once we have one (laughs) that works. Yeah. So yeah, that would have been my next question. Do you see people doing you know, the same thing in a different um, state? Or is it what you just said, you first need to get yours running properly? Well, I think I, I think our community is the only group that can really get our system functioning appropriately. And then I would say we will influence and inspire other communities. And hopefully we can, you know, be a, a sounding board for their vision. Um, but I really love the idea of each community having the idea and the vision percolate from the grassroots up. And then, um, yeah, but yes, we would be replicating the idea of these smaller, tight-knit uh, regional hubs. And yes, by pioneering it here, we hope to inspire others. But like I said, I think the like if I could imagine a long-term role for our nonprofit, it would be to... Um, to listen, to, to really go into deep listening mode around what a community wants for itself and then try to say, well, if you want to do that, here's the tool for that. Oh, you want to do that? Okay, well, here's the set of tools you're going to need mm-hmm. and expect to be very patient. You know, at least we could help anticipate what they're headed into and help, um, yeah, help give them what they need to, to achieve what their vision is. And we don't really, like right now, I feel like our communities, we can look back into history to inspire ourselves, um, to take what we want from history to define our future, but we also are flying blind. Like we, there aren't a huge amount of, there are fiber shed systems that work beautifully in villages all over um, Central and South America, Southeast Asia. There are indigenous communities that have village style textile creation but it's different when you live in the west um, where we've kind of been our imperial systems have been taking from all these other countries for everything that they need and so it's such a game changer to try to build an analog to village style textile creation in the u.s I mean, it's just a very, it's a funny, beautiful um, merging of influences. And um, I'm really, I think it's just what America needs, like right now. I think the West needs it too. Just kind of take care of your home community Mm. really well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your visionary ideas and also sharing all the stories of what you all have already achieved where can our listeners find out more about the fiber shed project and the community uh, they can find out more at www.fibershed.org and we will have um, an agricultural co-op 
a website up soon. Um, I, it's, it'll be NorCal Cyber Shed, um, I think dot com. But anyway, I will, I'll get, I'll make sure that the ag co-op site is something I get out to people as well. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and uh, you can give the link to me, and then I'll make sure to link it also in the show notes so that it's very easy for everyone to find. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciated uh, your time and it was really nice talking to you. I wish you all the best for the Fiber Shed in the future. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> I appreciate your time today, too. Thank Have a you. good day. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Rebecca Burgess. If you want to find out more about the Fiber Shed and the great work that Rebecca is doing together with her team, Then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 099. Once again, elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 099. I really appreciate you listening in on the episode today. Talk to you again next week and bye for now. <laughs>